Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Mormon 1 through 6. This is the disintegration of the Nephites. They go from being this delightsome people in 4th Nephi, and then if you remember our last podcast, we showed you how they build up Zion, and then the end that's disintegrated, and then Mormon lives to witness the complete collapse of all of the goodness that they had. And this society had an incredible amount of light, and when they turn against it, no one is more wicked than those who turn against the fullness of light. So we're going to see greater wickedness among the Nephites than any other group of people. The Lord's going to say that, that this is the most wicked group of people that has ever existed. Now, may I suggest that this section is going to introduce us to what I believe is the hero of the Book of Mormon. I have asked many Latter-day Saints, who are, who's your favorite character? Who's your hero of the Book of Mormon? And many of them will say the classic ones, you know, the Captain Moroni, Alma the Younger, Lamoni, Ammon, Nephi, brother of Jared, all the great characters. Very rarely does anyone ever tell me that their hero in the Book of Mormon is Mormon. And I think there's a reason for that. I think the reason is that Mormon in his meekness filter does not write his greatness into the book. He's very quick to write the greatness of his heroes, Captain Moroni. You can tell Mormon loves Captain Moroni. I mean, he named his son Moroni. And he writes these verses like, if all men ever had been and were and ever would be likened to Captain Moroni, then the devil would have no power. Mormon doesn't write himself into that story. He doesn't write his greatness into this story. And so we have to dig it out. But once we dig it out, I think you can see that one of the greatest heroes of the Book of Mormon is the man who wrote it. His name is Mormon. He is doing the very thing all of us are pleading with God to be able to do, and that is raise a righteous family in a wicked environment. Isn't he? I mean, we don't know much about his wife or his other children, but his son stands as a symbol of the restoration. His son stands on top of all of our temples. He clearly got something right. He got something majorly right. And so he has to be considered the great hero. How do you raise a family? How do you raise a righteous family in a wicked world? Now, let's be clear. Let's be absolutely clear how wicked this environment has become. I mean, Mormon will tell. He will talk about the, for example, chapter 2, end of verse 8, a continual scene of wickedness and abomination has been before mine eyes ever since I have been sufficient to behold the ways of men. But it's not until chapter 4 that the Lord tells Mormon, I'm going to start in verse 11, but it's the Lord's quotation in verse 12 that I think is significant. It is impossible for the tongue to describe or for man to write a perfect description of the horrible scene of blood and carnage, which was among the people, both of the Nephites and the Lamanites. And every heart was hardened, so that they delighted in the shedding of blood continually. Now listen to what the Lord tells Mormon. And there never had been so great wickedness among all the children of Lehi, nor even among all the house of Israel, according to the words of the Lord, as was among this people. The Lord told Mormon, there's never been a more wicked people, not only on this continent, among the children of Lehi, but on any continent. Now that's consistent with those who once had light and then turned against it becomes so darkened. So rather than dwelling on that, what I'd really like to focus on is what did he do that was so great? How do you raise a righteous family in that wicked environment? Well, I believe it starts back in chapter 1. Let me just show you these nuggets, because Mormon is not going to write himself into the story. He's not going to tell you his greatness, so you got to dig it out. Verse 15, I think, is one of the biggest clues 
What chapter are you in? This is chapter 1, verse 15, going to the very beginning. Mormon is 15 years old. Now, it does say, Amaron does say to him that he was a sober child and quick to observe. And Mormon points out that he was learned somewhat after the manner of his people. All of those, I think, are wonderful things. Learning and soberness and quick to observe. But I think the key to raising a righteous family in a wicked environment is Mormon chapter 1, verse 15. I, being 15 years old, and being somewhat of a sober mind, therefore I was visited of the Lord and tasted and knew the goodness of Jesus. I just don't think we can emphasize that enough. It doesn't matter what the world around you is doing. If you are righteous, in one way or another, he will visit you. It doesn't have to be a physical manifestation. Sometimes it's simply the manifestation of his Holy Ghost or his blessings or his symbolic personage in sacred places. God will bless you, and if you taste and know the goodness of Jesus, the world will not be appetizing to you. Your children will not be fooled by the imitations of the world. No one knows they're eating bad food until they taste really good food. And once you taste and know the goodness of Jesus, nothing else will even come close to tasting good for you or for your children. We've got to taste and know the goodness of Jesus. Number two, I think there's a second thing we're going to do to help us see what Mormon did. And I'm going to walk through this book showing you his ages. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to watch for an anomaly. Because he'll go through most of the book, and the increment in his age per verse is fairly consistent except for one major time period. So he's not even going to tell us a story, but we've got to find the story he's not telling us. So starting in chapter 2, verse 2, we find out what year he was born. In his 16th year, which was the 326th year. So Mormon was born in 310 A.D., 310 after the Lord came. So from here on out, we're going to convert every one of these ages to a year. And I've written them in my margin so I can see how frequently he updates his age. So chapter 2, verse 2, he's 16. Chapter 2, verse 3, he's 17. Chapter 2, verse 9, he's 20. And then he describes a very, very long series of wars. And then in verse 15, he's 34. But at least we know what he's been doing for 14 years. But this is where he's been leading them in battle. Verse 16, he's 35. In chapter 2, verse 22, he's 36. Chapter 2, verse 28, he's 39. Chapter 2, verse 28, he's also 40. Now, that's a fairly normal procession. He's telling us a story, and his age is incrementing at a reasonable rate. Chapter 2, verse 28, he turns 40. And they happen to sign a peace treaty with the Lamanites. And now, two verses later, chapter 3, verse 1, he's 50. There's nothing in between that. At least between the gap of 20 and 34, we know exactly what he's been doing. He's been leading the army. But they sign a peace treaty, so he's not fighting. And 10 years goes by, and no record. And so you have to ask, what do you think he's doing for 10 years? Now, part of that is there's no question he's not idle in terms of being captain of the army. But 10 years. So go back to chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. And maybe we can figure out what he's doing during the 10 years. In 17, now the city of Jeshon was near the land where Amaron had deposited the records unto the Lord. Behold, I had gone according to the word of Amaron and taken the plates of Nephi and did make a record according to the words of Amaron. 
And upon the plates of Nephi, I did make a full account of all the wickedness and abominations. But upon these plates, meaning the gold plates that he started, I did forbear. So I don't have a whole lot of more evidence of that. But again, Mormon's not writing his story. So I would suggest to all of you that the 40 to 50 age gap, the 10 years with no mention of what he's doing, is when Mormon is writing the bulk of the Book of Mormon. He is reading the plates and he is receiving revelation. He's seeing visions of us in the latter days and he is writing the gold plates. It's funny, you can see hints in Mormon of what he's reading. Look back to chapter 2, verse 23, and tell me he hasn't read the story of Captain Rona in the title of Liberty. I mean, you there, know he has. There it is. Because he says that they should fight for their wives and their children and their houses and their homes. You know where he got that from. He got that from their ancestors and Captain Moroni. So clearly, Mormon has been studying these plates ever since he got them. And I just wonder if the 10-year gap was when he did the bulk of the abridgment. Because by the time we get to chapter 5... Before the final battle is over, he basically summarizes the abridgment he's already made. He's received a promise that it would go to the Gentiles. So put that on our list and say, how do you raise a righteous family? And I would just wonder, I'm, I wonder how old Moroni was during that 10-year gap. Mormons 40 to 50. Now, I just turned 50, and I can tell you the last 10 years of my life have been very intense dad-wise, raising children. And so if Moroni fits in that window, wouldn't that put him a young man to a young adult while Mormons are bridging these plates? And what do you think Mormon does when he comes home from work? I know some days he's helping them prepare for war, but he's got to be spending a huge bulk of his time in a peaceful environment. They've signed a peace treaty with the Lamanites so he can take a breath a little bit. He's got to be abridging those plates. And when he comes home from doing so, what do you think he does, Mike? What would you do? Yeah, he's talking about, I would say this too, Bryce. He's not just abridging them. He's a master abridger of plates. He's following the patterns that these ancient Near Eastern scribal schools would do. It's not just... Now, where would he get that instruction? He, well, like, where would he know how to do There this? has to have been a Scrabble tradition. There has to have been a group of priests and prophets who have for generations held this tradition. Like, for example, we didn't even know this tradition existed up until recently. Scholarship has recently uncovered that this isn't just random. They're not just writing stuff. They're following specific patterns of how to put this together. And by the way... There's layers to what he's doing. This is all about coming back into God's presence, and it's riddled with ritual symbolism as well. So he's clearly been endowed, and he clearly understands the method of how to make these texts. So he's a, a master prophet and a master author and a master statesman in general. I mean, how many people can even get one of those in their life? And he is not writing that into the story. He doesn't tell you about himself, which is another feather in his cap to tell you how great he is, because he doesn't write about his greatness. But clearly, there are so many hints here that this man has been faithfully studying the tradition of God, prophets. He's been studying the scriptures. He's been pouring through the Book of Mormon. If you go back through all of the Book of Mormon and, and do all of the and thus we seize and thus we seize, that's the brilliance of Mormon. And so I would suggest that if you want to raise a righteous family, you taste and know the goodness of Jesus. You fully participate in the gospel as you can tell Mormon has. And then you pour the scriptures into your life. Mormon dedicated his life to the Book of Mormon. And it doesn't necessarily mean we need to be the abridger. It's just consistent effort in the Scriptures. How many times have the Book of Mormon testified of the role that the Book of Mormon should take place in your life? 
Nephi at the very beginning said that if we will hold on to the iron rod, we cannot perish. We will not perish. And we've seen all throughout the Book of Mormon promises made to those who will study. And yet, we just have to see that Mormon is dedicating his life to the study of the Book of Mormon. He's writing the Book of Mormon. And is it a coincidence that that man raises a righteous family? I think he's also patterning his approach to the war right after Moroni. Yeah, he has a hero. I love the fact that his son's name is Moroni. Don't we often name our children after our heroes? Clearly, Captain Moroni has had a tremendous influence on Mormon's life, and he patterns himself after that. So I think that's number two. Now, there's several hints here. I I just love this one. In chapter 3, verse 12, another attribute that I think of that makes Mormon Mormon He says in verse 11, chapter 3, verse 11, I, Mormon, did utterly refuse from this time forth to be a commander and a leader of this people because of their wicked and abomination. So as soon as they want to avenge the Lamanites, as soon as they want to go on the offensive and they're boasting of their own strength, Mormon says, I'm out, tells you something about his character and his integrity. But then verse 12, he said, behold, I have led them. Notwithstanding their wickedness, I had led them many times to battle, and then this insight, and had loved them according to the love of God, which was in me with all my heart, and my soul had been poured out in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. I think one of the attributes that made Mormon so great was love. He loved his people. He clearly loved his people. He regrets their fall deeply. But I would put that on my list. You want to raise a righteous family in a wicked world, it takes love. Love is the key ingredient. Scriptures, taste and know the goodness of Jesus— and love. The other thing I would throw out, and I can't even compile these, there's way too many to compile, but clearly Mormon knows how to receive revelation. He knows how to hear him. It's not a coincidence that President Nelson has been saying, no one will be able to survive the latter days who doesn't know how to receive personal revelation. You need to know how to hear him. And I love these little hints that Mormon always drops that, oh, the Lord said, or the Lord mentioned, or the Lord told me. He is clearly being led. Remember that one verse we read about how wicked the Lamanites were? Well, in that very verse, it says, there never had been so great wickedness among all the children of Lehi, nor even among all the house of Israel, according to the words of the Lord. And he's always throwing that in, according to the Lord, which means this man is very, very close to the Spirit. If you'll go all the way back, and I know it's, it seems like a long journey, but it's, it's right in the same time period. If you'll go back to Words of Mormon, where he explains why he threw in the small plates of Nephi, Words of Mormon, chapter 1, I'm abridging, I get to King Benjamin, and then I find these plates, the small plates. Verse 4, these things which are upon these plates, pleasing me. What does that tell you about Mormon? He read the small plates and he said, I love this. He's very pleased. And then all of a sudden, the whisperings of the Spirit say, include that. Put that in. Why? He doesn't understand. Verse 5, I choose these things to finish my record upon them, which remainder of my record I shall take from the plates of Nephi. Now, verse 7, I know this doesn't make sense. I do this for a wise purpose, and I love this phrase, for thus it whispereth me, according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord, which is in me. And now I don't know all things. But the Lord knoweth all things which are to come, wherefore he worketh in me to do according to his will. 
I think there is so much evidence in this book about how close Mormon was to the Spirit, how many instructions he got from the Holy Ghost. He was able to say, hey, the Lord told me that, or it whispered unto me. I think that's an invitation to us. Yes. If you feel a prompting to do something, just do it. I think that's what got Mormon through the days where so much wicked surround him, is he tastes and knows the goodness of Jesus. He is committed to the Scriptures. His, he's filling his mind constantly with the words of the Scriptures. He loves deeply like Christ loves, and he is following the whisperings of the Holy Ghost. That's the story I'm digging out of this man. And the more you pull him out and see him, there is no greater desire I have than to be like that man, Mormon, and the God that Mormon worshipped, which is Jesus. I think he's a hero. And lost in this whole story that we're about to dive into of the fall of the Nephites is the greatness of this man and his ability to raise a righteous family in a wicked environment. I think there's another message here too, and it's in some of the darkest times, Heavenly Father sends some of the brightest lights. And I think we're coming into some dark times. I think there's some bright lights out there. And I think it's also invitation to us to be that light. Yep. We need to stand up and do this. You know, I, re- I wasn't reading it from a Latter-day Saint scar, but I was reading this Protestant scar talking about the destruction of the first temple. And he said, right at the moment when Israel was to feel that God had abandoned them and they lost their temple, the Lord literally sent a flood of prophets to them. They had so many prophets come right before it was destroyed, and it was God trying to tell them, I know you guys. And I bet it was more than just the quantity of prophets. I bet it was the quality of prophets as well. Not only does he send lots of prophets— but I think he sends the best of the prophets in the wickedest of times, which ought to be a shout out to the Latter-day Saints. You have come to earth in the final wicked days of this planet because we are the best he has, and we are the ones that he, is, that, that he can trust to save the world. But just a plug from my hero Mormon in a wicked environment, he is, to me, one of the great heroes of the Book of Mormon. All right, that being said, there's one thing I think I'd like to throw out there before we jump into kind of the big picture fall of the Nephites, and that is a lesson on repentance. Sometimes we repent because we got caught. Sometimes we repent because we got embarrassed. We're embarrassed. Or the consequences of sin were painful enough that it moved us to action. And Mormon points out that that doesn't lead to repentance. Speaking of his people, I'm in Mormon chapter 2, verse 11, they start to mourn. They're really mourning because their property and possessions have become slippery, just like Samuel the Lamanite predicted. Verse 12, when I, Mormon, saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me, knowing the mercies and the long suffering of the Lord, therefore supposing that he would be merciful unto them and that they would again be a righteous people. I was hoping that their sorrow would lead to repentance and they'd be righteous. But behold, this my joy was vain, for their sorrow was un, was for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned, because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. They did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirit, but they did curse God and wish to die. In other words, when When I make a choice, when I choose to do something wrong, I receive a punishment, a captivity, uh, I lose freedoms. Now, the loss of those freedoms can be very painful. If we are sorry because of the consequences of our sins, then we're really not in a position to ever change. Given that same scenario, I would still make the choice and just see if I could avoid the consequences. That's very different from someone who is sorry for the choice. I'm sorry I made the choice I made. Because that person, given another chance, is going to change their choice. 
and not choose the same thing. There is a major difference between being sorry for the consequence and being sorry for the choice. If someone repents over something because they got caught and they're embarrassed, hopefully that leads to repentance. But that sorrow is not the kind of sorrow that usually leads to repentance. It's only when we're sorry for the choice we made that we change. And until you are sorry for the choice, you're simply going to make the bad choice again, but try to avoid the bad consequences. So if you got caught and that's why you're embarrassed, odds are you're going to try the sin again and just try more carefully to not get caught. And that is not the sorrowing that leads to repentance because of the goodness of God. The only kind of sorrowing that changes us is when we're sorry for the choice we made. Whether we got caught or not, I'm sorry I made that choice. And if you give me another chance, Lord, I won't make that choice. That is repentance. Just as a second scripture, let me take you to Alma chapter 32, where the Zoramite poor are repenting because they're poor. And Alma says to them, because you are compelled to be humble, blessed are you. And I'm going to paraphrase that. Because you got caught, because you're now embarrassed, and people know that you did something wrong, blessed are you. For a man, sometimes, if he is compelled to be humble, seeketh repentance. Now surely, whosoever repenteth shall find mercy, and he that findeth mercy and endureth to the end, same shall be saved. So sometimes, being embarrassed gets you to actually change. However, verse 14, now as I said unto you that because you were compelled to be humble, you are blessed. Do you not suppose that they are more blessed who truly humble themselves because of the word? Yea, he that truly humbleth himself and repenteth of his sins and endureth to the end, the same shall be blessed. Now listen to what Alma says. Yea, much more blessed than they who are compelled to be humble. Repentance is sorrow for the choice, not sorrow that the choice led to captivity. It's good to be sorry that we got caught. It's better to be sorry that you made a choice that offended God and caused you to lose the Holy Ghost and separate you from Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost. When we're sorry for the sin, we will change. When we're sorry for the consequences, we'll simply try better to avoid the consequences. I love that doctrine. It's essential doctrine to understand because we see a whole lot of Latter-day Saints sorry for the consequences of their sins. May we be sorry for the choice. And sometimes the pain wakes us up. And sometimes it does. And and hopefully we're in that state, right? Where you go through something and for example, with your body, like let's say your knee goes out or your ankle goes out or your back goes out and you go into the doctor and they find out, well, we've got this problem. We've got to fix it. You could ignore the pain or you could get going on it. And so I really like that where Elder Maxwell says, pain is a great teacher and it gets us to that point. The problem they have is they go full nihilist. They go from this pain to they just curse God and wish that they would die. There's a really good book called Happier by Tel Shahar. And in this book, he talks about the quadrants of happiness. And he says, basically, you want to balance. It's a secular book, but he basically says, you want to balance the needs of the now with the needs of the future. And they did this experiment on these animals where all they did was shock them. And the animals never got rewarded. And it was like learned hopelessness. They just learned to be hopeless. And that's kind of where the Nephites are. They have this learned hopelessness because they're not looking to the future. And they're also not looking to Jesus. They're just kind of looking to the now. And if that's all you're looking for, you kind of get driven to that. And anyway, in, in his book, he talks about that where he says, true happy people balance the needs of the now with the needs of the future. And then I would add, I would read this to the lens of Jesus and say, in the spirit. And well, they're looking at the now and they just want to wipe themselves out. It's kind of a sad verse. They want to curse God and 
wish that they would die. It's, it's, it's so tragic. And it's got to be more painful for Mormon to watch this as he's reading what the Nephites have done, because when they do choose God, they are protected and preserved and kept. And he's seen in the history that the Lord really has blessed them when they're righteous, and they just cannot get that concept. It's so all sad. about them. It's so sad. So there's a lot of stuff in here about war. There's a lot of stuff in here about treaties. They do sign a treaty at 350 where the Lamanites get the land southward, they get the land northward. We'll put this in the show notes. There's a really cool chart called The Life of the Great Military Commander Mormon, and you can kind of see his life, just like Bryce laid out with the ages. And you'll note that in Mormon 6, he's 74, 75 years old. Think about that. He's fighting with his people at that age. He's probably not a, a young whippersnapper anymore, but he still is leading them. It's pretty awesome stuff. So I do also want to add, when Bryce talked about the, him utterly refusing to serve, I think he's patterning that after Moroni. If you remember from the war chapters that we covered, Moroni, Captain Moroni in the war chapters would never go up against the Lamanites in an offensive battle. And so in, in Mormon 3, verse 10, it says that they would swear by the heavens and also by the throne of God that they would go up to battle against them and that they would cut them off. And that at that point, Mormon's like, listen, I'll lead you guys, but I'm not doing this. Which clearly shows he's reading the account of Moroni. It's got to be, right? Because back in Alma 43, 46, Mormon himself wrote the promise of the Lord that says, as long as you're not guilty of the first offense nor the second offense— you know, you will defend your families. But Mormon clearly knows the danger of being guilty of the second offense and striking back and being on the offensive because the Lord's people never get help from the Lord when they are on the offensive. Yeah. So in the third chapter, go to verse 17 of chapter 3. Verse 17, he shifts gears where he says, I'm this idle witness to this destruction. But then in verse 17 of Mormon 3, he shifts gears and he says, I write unto you, O you Gentiles. And so now he's talking to us. Look at verse 20, right in the third line. He says, Therefore I write unto you all that you must stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we must be judged of our works. He's he's speaking to us. And if you remember the podcast we did recently where Bryce shared that awesome quote by Elder Holland, you know, where Elder Holland essentially says, What gave Mormon hope was what he saw in us. So he shifts gears in the midst of all this chaos and carnage. He has hope because he can see where this is leading. He can see that these words are going to bring people to Jesus. And it's just such a beautiful quote. So that really does carry him forward. And I think sometimes if you're in the midst of really troubling times, if you can somehow ask the Lord, can you give me a glimpse of hope? These people are don't want to repent. To me, where it says the day of grace had passed, it's not necessarily time. To me, it's they don't want to repent. Because I really do believe in a God who says, I'll forgive you, just got to repent. And they don't want it. Well, that just gives me great hope as far as what's happening in the future. In the fourth chapter, it's really rough. Like we get into human sacrifice. He says, I can't describe the horrible scene. When Columbus came to the Americas, he saw some of this happening as well. And it was kind of horrific because from the European perspective, they weren't doing this. But this was where in this chapter, we see this. Go to verse 20 and 21. It, it talks about that they're fleeing. But then in verse 21, it says, when they came the second time, the Nephites were driven and slaughtered and their women and children were sacrificed to idols. Um, we see this in the Americas. And it does happen historically. And so it, the Book of Mormon is sitting right in the cultural milieu of this, wherever it happened, in this kind of generation. These things did happen. So it's pretty tough um, to read. I, I can't imagine hearing these reports and having any kind of hope. But this is, this is a man who's living in the midst of this, and yet he's happy, right? He finds a way to be happy and have hope. Yeah, and he had written earlier in chapter 4, verse 5, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked, and it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. And that's what Mormon is seeing. It's just the slaughter of wicked people slaughtering wicked people. I think verse 5 is really important. 
I think that's a theme of the Book of Mormon, and that is, to me, a very important distinction from the Old Testament. So I think it's worth visiting at least for a minute, and it's this. In a lot of the Old Testament narratives, we have either through an editorial insertion, maybe it's prophetic, but we have statements where Yahweh or Jehovah says to the righteous, go and kill these guys. You don't read that anywhere in the Book of Mormon on a massive scale. I know we have Nephi right out of the gate, but you don't have the Lord saying, go and just decimate all these people. Rather, what you have is you have prophets who come to generals or vice versa, and they say, the Lord has given us this direction. This is what we're going to do. But it's you'll note, it's always a defensive war. It's never we're going to go on the offensive. And every time that the Nephites want to be offensive, according to Mormon, God's not with them. And Mormon won't even go with them. So I think that's an important, I I know it's subtle, but I think that's an important distinction because when we get to the Old Testament, I'm going to read the Old Testament passages using the lens of interpretation of the Book of Mormon. To me, the Book of Mormon unlocks the Bible. Now, the Bible can unlock the Book of Mormon, don't get me wrong, but I'm always if I'm going to pick, I'm going to go with the lens of the Book of Mormon to interpret some of these things. So I think that's important, that the wicked destroy the wicked. That's Mormon 4, verse 5. To me, it should be highlighted. It also ties in with the Come, Follow Me lesson that we did last week. When Jesus talks about the New Jerusalem, it's going to be built on this, the American continent. If you take that and then you also add section 57 where the Lord says it's going to be in Missouri, that the city of it, speaking of the New Jerusalem in verse 66 of section 45, it says, it shall be called the New Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the most high God. Verse 68, it shall come to pass that among the wicked, that every man that will not take a sword against his neighbor must needs flee unto Zion for safety. And then the next verse, there shall be gathered unto it out of every nation under heaven, and it shall be the only people that shall not be a war one with another. That's important. It's also a prophecy of the latter days. If you'll go all the way back to first Nephi chapter 22, remember how Nephi sees the end of the world, but he's told he cannot write about it. John is going to write about it. But Nephi was apparently able to comment generally about it. And so one of the things that shocked Nephi as he saw the end of the world, 1 Nephi chapter 22, verse 13, and the blood of that great and abominable church, which is the whore of all the earth, shall turn upon their own heads, for they shall war among themselves, and the sword of their own hands shall fall upon their own heads, and they shall be drunken with their own blood. The way the world ends isn't good defeating evil. It's evil destroying evil. It's evil turning on evil, and they war among themselves. So in the end of this world, it's not that the righteous will defeat the wicked. It's that the righteous will escape to Zion and will be doing their own things as we build up Zion, and the wicked will turn on each other, and they will destroy themselves. So again, a pattern, the Nephites are a pattern of our day as well. And it's so unfortunate because we're going to see the destruction of the Nephite culture long before the destruction of the Nephite people. Meaning, Mormon even tells us, he's like, these guys, these guys won't even listen to me. There comes a point where they won't even listen to him anymore. And so in essence, they lose their identity. They lose their culture before they lose their lives. And then when they're decimated, the Lamanites turn on each other and they kill each other. And by the time people from Europe come that have Christianity, a lot of their culture is lost. Now, are there pieces of Nephite religion scattered throughout the Americas? Absolutely. But they've lost a lot more than they have in Europe. And so I think a lot of that has to do with a double fold. They lose their religion, but then they decimate the prophets and and the visionary men and women of Nephi's generation are wiped out. And so we see that in the fifth chapter. He talks about them being scattered. And becoming worse than they've ever been. Verse 15. Yeah. Look at verse 15. The seed of this people may more fully believe his gospel. That was his hope. He's writing about what he hopes will happen. But then he says, here's what's going to happen. So he says, I hope, I'm writing this, that the seed of this people may more fully believe his gospel, which shall go forth among them from the Gentiles. For, now here's the reality, this people shall be scattered 
and shall become a dark and a filthy and a loathsome people beyond the descriptions of that which ever have been amongst us, yea, even that which hath been among the Lamanites, and this because of their unbelief and their idolatry. And they're without Christ and God in the world. They're driven about as chaff. They were once delightsome. They're without anchor, verse 18. And then verse 19. Behold, the Lord has reserved their blessings, which they might have received in the land for the Gentiles who shall possess the land. So the blessings for them are going to be turned over to us. And by the way, they're driven and scattered again in verse 20. Now, that being driven and scattered, that really was a thing. And I don't know the numbers of the indigenous people in 1829 when this is published. I know that we have the the colonies. There's some Western migration, but I don't know where we are. But we do know this, that over time, verse 20, they were driven and scattered. And the estimates vary, but we have an estimate of about 95% of the indigenous people in North and Mesoamerica are wiped out. And the number one killer is smallpox. Years ago, I had a class. I had to read this book called Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. He won a Pulitzer Prize writing this book. And essentially the question that he asks is this, why were the Europeans able to conquer this nation that was literally filled with people. Now, how, ma- how many people, we don't know, estimates vary anywhere from 20 million to even as many as 100 million people lived here. And historians have concluded that had the indigenous people not died, everything in history would have played out differently. Think about that. 95% of their population is wiped out. And so in the, in the book, he basically lays out that the Europeans had guns and they had immunity to some of these germs, and then they had a lot of steel technology. Approximately 95% were wiped out. And then he talks about Mexico, and he says, by 1618, Mexico's population of about 20 million had plummeted down to 1.6. And so verse 20 is really happening historically, which leads us then to the sixth chapter. Now, this is the final destruction of their people right there at the Hill Cumorah. And there's kind of a couple endings, isn't there, Bryce? We've got an ending here. The Book of Mormon could end here, but it doesn't, right? Then he turns the record over to Moroni, and he does some stuff, and he edits the Jaredite record, and then he ends. And even Moroni a couple times says, I'm going to end, and then he's like, wait, I'm not done yet. So there's lots of stopping happening here. But this is a really important ending from a symbolic perspective. So, Bryce, I'm going to kind of go through some of this uh, in Mormon 6. So what do we have here? We have this hill. And he's going to call it Cumorah, but that wasn't its first name. The hill was called Rama by the Jaredites. And Rama, we think, means super high, like the heights. And Cumorah can mean a lot of different things. And it just depends on which route and where, you know how are we going to go down these rabbit holes of linguistics. So we're going to do Akkadian first. So really quick, Akkadian, it could just mean to heap up or to layer up, especially when it comes to corpses. Now, is there a pun going on here? I think there is, personally. Now, everything I'm about to say, take it for what it's worth, but I think these pieces mean something. So, in the Akkadian root, it means to heap up. It could also mean ruin, or ruin heap, back in Akkadian. Another one, if we go down the Hebrew route, there's basically two words in the Hebrew Old Testament for priests. One is Kohen. A Kohen is a priest. But there's another Hebrew word that's used that we don't see a lot because the editors of the Old Testament kind of denigrate these guys. And the word is Comer. And Comer pops up in Kings. The Kemarim. The Kemarim are in 2 Kings 23.5. And the authors of the Old Testament are going to put these guys down, the Kemarim. And they're going to call them idolatrous priests. These are the priests that Josiah puts down. Now, if you remember our podcast that we did at the very beginning of the Book of Mormon on 1 Nephi 1-7, through in that podcast, we talk about there's a massive fight going on about 650 BC. And there are certain followers of God that are cast out, and Josiah doesn't like them. And the Kemarim are these guys. And I'm going to quote a scholar, and she's going to equate them with what she calls Melchizedek priests. She says this, it is possible 
that a comber had significance that later editors of the Old Testament sought to obscure, and the indications are that this was an association with Melchizedek. And if you read the Syriac Old Testament, the word for the Melchizedek priests was the Qumrah, or the Kemarim. Now, what does this have to do with Kimura? One interpretation of this hill, Rama is the Jaredite name, but Kimura is very closely associated with the Comer or the Kemarine or the Qumrah, the Melchizedek priests. Now, we don't know. We don't have Mormon here in this podcast. I would love to just sit Mormon down and say, hey, talk to us about what you see here. I just want to put that as a, as a seed in your mind that a possible interpretation of this hill, besides the Akkadian root, root of like to heap or to ruin, what, by the way, it could be all these things, but it could also represent a hill of the Melchizedek priest. Now, to me, that's going to be important as we go down. We're just getting started, but I think we're going to come full circle. If you remember the beginning of the Book of Mormon, Lehi sees a pillar of fire at a rock, and he's brought into the council of God, and he sees a man on a throne, which is God with a book. Just put that in your mind for a second. So now we're back to the text. We're on a mountain and notice what it says. There's a verse in here in verse four. There it is. He says, we're at the hill Kimura and notice what he says. It was a land of waters, rivers, and fountains. Notice that they pitched their tents round about it. Just a thought. Could this represent the temple of the Lord? Waters, rivers, fountains, the Melchizedek mound as it were. Mormon's going to tell us that he's going to put the records in this hill. At the end of verse six, he says, I'm going to hide them up in the hill Cumorah, all the records. So then you got to kind of read the book by Don Bradley on the lost manuscript on the 116 pages. And he's a historian and he goes down the rabbit hole of who are the guys that Joseph Smith knew that had access to the manuscript that was lost. And one of them is Martin Harris. The people that worked with this manuscript talked about the box that was made of stone as the Nephite Ark. So just go with me in your mind's eye. The Ark that Moses had and the Ark that the Nephites had are going to be replicated, but they're going to be inverted. So what I mean by that is the tablets that Moses wrote on were stone, but the tablets that Mormon wrote on were gold. The Ark that Moses had was gold, but the ark that the Nephites made was a stone box. So think about, we're back to this hill. In the hill is the ark. It's in the ground, and it has all the accruements of kingship. It's got the plates. It's got the breastplate, the Urim and Thummim. That's what the priests had. The sword of Laban, that's connected to the sword that David slew Goliath with, which was in the Holy of Holies. Um, you also have the Leahona, which would be the Nephite equivalent to God's presence with the Israelites, which would be the pot of manna or the bud, the budding rod of Aaron. And so they have their Nephite equivalent of the ark. Why? Because they had to build a nation. First Nephi 1, God comes to Lehi and says, I'm going to build Israel in another land. So they have prophets, priests, and kings. They have a temple. They have a holy of holies. They have an ark. So at the end of the Book of Mormon, you have a hill, you have an ark, you have it in the ground, you have waters and fountains, and then you get to this verse. Look at verse 11. Everybody is hewn down, save 20 and four of us. Like, why does he put that in there? So many times, Mormon tells us throughout the narrative that Nephites defect, that Nephites are running to the north. There's Nephites running everywhere. But for some reason, he wants to take the time and write on these plates, we all die except for 24 of us. What's going on there? 24 is extremely symbolic. Something's, something's going if on If you're here. familiar with the book of Revelation, a huge bell just went off in your head. Especially if you read it in the context of 1 Nephi 1. So all truth is going to be embraced or encapsulated into one thing. It's like we're coming full circle. And so the Book of Mormon begins with a prophet in the council of God, and he sees a book. Just look at chapter 4 of Revelation, as Bryce said. John, he sees a door open in heaven and then a throne, verse 2. And around the throne, verse 4, are 20 and 4 seats. The 24 elders clothed in right raiment, and they have crowns of gold, and they're going to cast their crowns, verse 10, 
at the foot of this being on a throne. Well, who's the being? Look at verse 8. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That is holy of holies. Go to the next chapter. They cast their crowns. What's the individual holding in his hand in chapter 5, verse 1? He's holding a book. And the rest of the book of Revelation is, what are we doing with this book? Go to 1 Nephi 1. He sees, verse 8, a vision, the heavens open. He sees God sitting on his throne with angels surrounding him and one descending out of heaven. And then in verse 10, he sees 12. And then in verse 11, he sees a book. Now, certainly I don't know. But to me, as we start stacking these pieces together, I think any one of these by itself, we could say, okay, maybe that's a coincidence. But I think we start stacking it up. We've got the hill. It's the Melchizedek Hill, one name of it. Another name is it's high up. There's waters and fountains. There's two of these 24 guys, by the way, are initiated priests. We don't know the the identity of the other 22, but Mormon says, I'm one of them, and so is Moroni, and they've both seen and tasted Jesus. These guys have been introduced to Jesus. They have their calling election made sure. They're fully initiated priests, and their swords in their hands. So just work with me here. These are ones who are sent forth from God's presence with swords in their hands, defending the waters of life at the temple. I, I can't but help to say Genesis three twenty four, let cherubim and a flaming sword. So there's some possibilities happening here. So the Book of Mormon ends kind of with a temple scene. You've got high priests, you've got a book, we're going to bury the records, and yet there's death and destruction all around. And I think the Book of Mormon is ending with the end of the Nephite era. You had the truth. Your responsibility was to save the world. Your responsibility was to teach truth, and here we are at the end of your era. Now, fast forward to that very hill. At least symbolic, it's the very hill. Some people think it was moved, but symbolically, it's the same hill. Where a 14-year-old comes, Joseph Smith comes back and meets one of those two, and this is a transition. The day of the Nephites ended, and it is now the day of the Gentiles. It is the day of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The last part of the Book of Mormon, at least Mormon's part, is the death and destruction at that hill of the Nephites, and then fast forward to the birth of a new day where Joseph Smith comes back to that hill, opens up that stone box, grabs that gold book, and the transfer from the Nephites to the Latter-day Saints is now complete. So the end of the Book of Mormon is a pass-off. It is a transition from them to us. Now, they failed. They did not see it through. Their generation ended in flames of fire on that hill. Ours cannot and must not. Going back to that Jesus's favorite story that we talked about a couple weeks ago, we must succeed. We must take that. We must be the people that we have been sent here to be. It is the day of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have been handed the baton that ended in a horrible scene of bloodshed for the Nephites. And now it's our turn to run. It's our turn to run and save the world and usher in the millennium. I just, I, I, that is a very symbolic ending. The Book of Mormon begins and ends with a temple scene, but the ending scene is tragic. And so it's transferred over to a young man named Joseph Smith, who is given another chance to end it gloriously. And choosing otherwise, picking the other plan, is just chaos. I mean, after the Nephites reject him, they get wrecked, and then the Lamanites turn on themselves. So I want you to just imagine you're Mormon, and you're standing at the veil facing outward. So behind you is the ark, and outward is just an ocean of chaos. It's just completely destroyed. That brings to my mind the experience in First Nephi 8 where Lehi says, I am in a lone and dreary place. There's nothing but chaos. And as soon as he grabs the rod, then he starts to see the light. 
And so the Book of Mormon really does come, it comes full circle, and yet it's written and superimposed in this text. Instead of glory, it's tragedy. But it's not because of God. It's because they rejected God, which brings us to a couple more themes. Look in verse 17 of Mormon 6. O ye fair ones, how could you have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could you have rejected that Jesus, and there it is, who stood with open arms to receive you? That has temple liturgical significance. And then also verse 21. Notice what it says. That the mortal must put on immortality. In the Greek, it's in duo, to be invested or to put on sacred vestments. So we are going to put on immortality and then be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. So literally, Mormon 6, and this isn't the only time this is going to happen because we have multiple endings of the Book of Mormon. Part of the temple experience was the feast. And so Moroni is going to talk about eating the Yahweh bread or eating the bread of life and drinking the blood of Jesus. That's going to come up again, and Moroni is going to have his ending. But here is this cosmic battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And it's almost like, I don't want to wax too Indiana Jones-ish, but it's almost like when the lid to the ark closes, now there's no light. And the guy who's going to put the lid on in Mormon 6, it is Mormon. From a typological perspective, we've got to relax our eyes a little bit and see this as a glorious ending to the book. It's glorious and yet it's drenched with tragedy. It's so tragic because of what might have been. That's verse 19 of, of chapter but the, 5. part of the glory is the Nephites were, the Nephites' assignment was to write the book. And they did it. They, they did. did what they were supposed to do. The Nephites wrote the book and are now handing the book off to the Gentiles. And the job of the Gentiles is to take that book and convert the world with it. Yeah. And that's going to lead into our next podcast next week, where Moroni is all about the preservation of the book. We finished the book. We did our assignment, and we got the book written. If you remember, when Nephi saw that the plain and precious perks were taken from the Bible, the Lord told Nephi, hey, it's okay, because my plan is to talk to your seed, Nephi, and they're going to write a book. So we now have ended that successfully, because the Nephites wrote the book. But from here on out, we've got to get that book into the hands of the people that will use that book. Our job is how to use that book. Their job was to write the book. So in one sense, they did their job. Now we've got to do ours. Yeah. I love this quote by Hugh Nibley. I'm just going to read a part of it, but we'll put the whole quote in the show notes. He just talks about, he's talked to Latter-day Saints over the years that say, how come Joseph Smith gives us the, the temple in Nauvoo, but none of that's in the Book of Mormon? And he just goes, well, actually, it's on every page. You just got to know how to look for it. And it's just such a great quote. But I love this line where he says, as a matter of fact, they, the temple ordinances, are everywhere in the book if we know where to look for them. And the dozen or so discourses on the atonement in the Book of Mormon are replete with temple imagery. And then he talks about this in the quote where he says, one of the greatest messages or symbols of the atonement is verse 17 of Mormon 6. Jesus stands with open arms to receive you. I just love that. I think that's beautiful. I think even in the midst of all this chaos, Mormon sees, now this is my packaging. This is what I take out of it. I don't know. I'm not the judge. I don't think every one of these Nephites that dies in this chapter really had a fair shake. I think if you were raised in a culture of violence and your and your enemies are drinking the blood of your sister and they're sacrificing human beings, I totally get why they would have vengeance in their heart. I totally get why they it would be it would be confusing. If you think about this today, if you have kids right now that are struggling that are confused about some of the things our 2020 world is confused with, Boy K Packer said this. He says a lot of this stuff is just environmental stuff that we don't have a lot of control over. But Boy K Packer says a lot of those things will be overruled eventually. They will know the truth. So to me, my packaging of verse 21 of Mormon 6 where they're going to put on immortality to me, I see hope for these guys. I don't totally cast them aside and say that they're doomed. I see they're swimming in a culture of chaos and violence, and I don't know how many of them really can make good choices. And as a culture, their entire system gets wrecked. But I see hope. And I think like we've talked about and we've quoted Elder Holland, we are living in that day of hope. So as bad as this is, there's hope. Now with that... We've got to preserve the book. 
And so next week, we'll turn to the writings of Moroni. Moroni's going to take over for his dad. Mormon's going to write one last chapter to the surviving Lamanites, which is a tribute to who he is. And then Mormon will be gone, and Moroni will take over, because we've got to preserve the book. And Moroni will talk about what are the reasons why the world rejects the book. So come back next week, and we'll talk about what are the top five reasons that Moroni gives that the world is going to reject the book. But you can't reject the book, because the book is the answer. The book that they wrote is the answer for our day. And with that, we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.